Open your Bibles to the book of James, chapter 5. James, chapter 5. The issue of justice is obviously a huge topic in our time as it has been in other times and other cultures. So much debate in our society that centers on issues of law and ethics and morals and rationality and concepts of fairness. On one level, it is focused on procedures and processes of the law. On another level, the discussion focuses on the overall issue of equity and fairness within social systems and whether whether or not those systems on one sense adhere to the law or whether they just simply create certain advantages, disadvantages, favoritism toward one group or another. Throughout the years, people have debated this issue. It's not unique to only us. Philosophers like John Locke built the whole systems on natural law. Others came along and built systems on divine law, on theology. Some focused on utilitarian arguments. Others focused on moral arguments. Some focused on equal opportunity. Others focused on equal benefit. And the the debates just go on and on and on when it comes to the issue of fairness and, and equity and justice and suffering and what is right and what is wrong. But as a Christian, as we go into discussions on these kinds of topics, there's one issue that must be clear in our minds if we're going to discuss them in a Christian way. If we're going to discuss them in a New Testament way. There's a Christian basis for talking about justice that ought to make our conversations about justice distinct from every other conversation that you would hear, whether philosophical or moral or ethical or whatever it might be. And I would dare say that to eliminate this one issue from our discussions about fairness and suffering and justice and injustice and all those things, to eliminate this one issue is to fundamentally abandon a Christian stance on the topic of justice and suffering. You cannot discuss suffering and injustice from a truly Christian perspective without focusing on this one issue because it is the message of the New Testament. It is the issue that is the focus of nearly every passage that you'll find in the New Testament dealing with issues of suffering and injustice. The one issue that must be the forefront issue for those of us who are Christians as we talk about this issue. And that is eschatology. It must be eschatological. Which if you don't know that word, that is simply a word for the study of the end. 
It is a word that talks about how things will end up. It's the study of how the end of the world comes about and the beginning of eternity. It's the study of the return of Christ and the final judgment. It's the study of how God resolves everything in the end and how He ultimately exalts Christ and brings glory to the name of Christ and sets everything right according to Christ. That's eschatology. Now, we know that Christ, of course, came already into this world. We celebrate that at Christmas time. He came in His humiliation. But we also know that He's coming again. He came the first time and He was, he was offered up as a sacrifice for sins on the cross. He was crucified. He was rejected. He was, in so many ways, humiliated. And we know that through all of that, God has already exalted His name above every name. And we know already that we do everything we can to bring glory to the name of Christ. And we know that we do everything we can already to do things according to His will. We know all of that is true, but we also recognize that all of our meager efforts to exalt Christ, all of our meager efforts to glorify Christ, to do the will of Christ, at this time are nothing compared to the way things will be in the end. Our eschatology necessarily tells us that when Christ comes back, things are going to be better. When Christ comes back, because He comes back, because of Him, He will do things the way things are supposed to be done. We certainly have responsibilities in this life to reflect His glory even now in our everyday life, but we would never presume to think that our meager efforts right now in any way are comparable to the glory when He returns. We would never presume to think that all of our efforts now would, would compare to the kind of kind of world He will construct, the kind of justice He will bring, the kind of righteousness He will bring, the kind of fairness He will bring. Nothing that we do right now could ever come close to comparing to that. All of that glory awaits Him. And so when it comes to this issue of suffering in society, we certainly want to live our life according to just and righteous laws, but we never imagine that we will see a world of justice, anything like what He will bring when He returns. And so, as we discuss justice as Christians, we have to do it with a keen focus on the return of Christ. As we discuss the, the issue of injustice and suffering, we do it with a clear message. And the clear message is this, that real justice will never happen until Christ returns. And in that way, He'll be exalted. We can articulate it conceptually, but the message of the Scripture isn't focused on those conceptual arguments. We can talk about it ethically, but the message of Scripture is not focused on moral and rational and ethical arguments as much as it is focused on the eschatological elements of suffering and justice. The focus 
is always on the return of Christ and how he will make all things right in the end. It's sad then to realize that most of the discussion that takes place today, even within the Christian community, about issues of suffering and issues of of, uh Uh, injustice and unfairness and all of that stuff, it's sad to realize that most of the discussions within the church have very little concern with this issue of eschatology. Or to say it another way, the focus of current Christian debates about justice are in some ways indistinguishable from the message of the world. If you were to pick up uh, the, the common Christian book published today or the common blog article published today, you would have a hard time on its merits distinguishing it from anything in the world. The current debates are more likely to try to build on those same foundations, worldly systems of justice, and not surprisingly, more and more we find Christians arriving at the same conclusions as the world. Their argumentation, their solutions are all the same because they mostly ignore the issue of eschatology and their answers to injustice, their counsel to those experiencing suffering sound very different than the counsel they would receive from New Testament writers. More importantly, their responses to suffering look very different than New Testament responses. Their focus is less on eschatology, and so therefore it is less on the return of Christ, and therefore it's less on the justice and fairness of Christ, and therefore their focus is less on Christ. It's less about His return, it's less about His justice, and therefore it's less about His glory, it's less about His name, it's just less about Him. But this is where the New Testament places its focus. When there are issues of injustice, when there are issues of unfairness, when there's issues of suffering, this eschatological dimension is where the New Testament places its focus squarely on Christ and on His glory. Now this morning we have a a prime example of that in our passage of study which is James 5 verses 7 through 12. James 5, 7 through 12 which, which comes in the flow of text where James has just discussed in the first six verses of the chapter this issue of the wealthy privileged people in society failing to pay their workers. They're either completely withholding wages or they're not giving them what is fair and instead they're living in these indulgent, luxurious lifestyles while all the time those that they are pressing are lifting up their voices to God. Now that's the framework, that is the context And this is the counsel that James gives. Verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives it the early and later rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, 
for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not, may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. You've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So the the counsel is clear. In the face of suffering and injustice, be patient. Be patient. He says it a number of times throughout this passage. Over and over again, imperatives, Just be patient. It's a passage about suffering. It's a passage about patience and suffering. It's a passage about steadfastness. It's a passage about bearing up under injustices. But it's also at the same time. It's a passage about the coming of the Lord. It's a passage about judgment. It's a passage about when the Lord returns. It's a passage about placing your focus on the return of Christ. And that being the primary response that you have to the issue of suffering and injustice. You can take note of that just in verse 7. Come until the coming of the Lord. Verse 8, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord. Verse 9, the judge is standing at the door. Verse 12, so that you may not fall into condemnation. All of that is all about His return. All of that is all about His judgment. Coming to set things right. Coming to judge where there has been wrong. Coming to judge where there's been unfairness. And so as a believer, that is the centerpiece of your message when it comes to injustice. It's not about what you do or what I do to establish justice. It's all about what He will do. Now these exhortations come really as a part of a whole broader discussion, not just the first part of James chapter 5, all the way back to chapter 4, where James is talking about conflicts in general. Why do you have conflicts? Why do you have wars? Why do you have fights? And it doesn't matter whether it's at an individual level, whether, whether it's in your home. It doesn't matter if it's in a societal level, in your community. It doesn't matter if it's at a national level among different states and and nations, it all arises, he says, out of sinful, idolatrous desires in our hearts. And he talks about that, and out of that come all kinds of discussions about inequities and injustices and grumbling and complaining and fighting, and that entire context reaches from chapter 4, verse 1, all the way down to verse 12 even, which we're reading here. This is his context of these exhortations. Exhortations about how to deal with the inevitable impatience and frustration and grumbling that you and I are tempted to when we face these kinds of issues. And as we dissect this passage this morning, I think what we'll find is James is calling us to consider a number of factors that ought to cause us to face 
injustice with this eschatological view. And that eschatological view ought to cause us to be patient. Or we could say five factors that foster patience in the face of suffering. Five factors that foster patience in the face of suffering. The first one is this. James wants us to remember the proximity of the Lord, the proximity of the Lord. You'll see that when he gives this command, be patient until the coming of the Lord. Or in verse 8, you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. That phrase at hand basically refers to proximity. It refers to something being very near. Not that you have arrived yet, but you are close so that you could arrive at any moment. You're literally just right outside the the arrival destination or right outside the door. And the implication is that there are no remaining steps. There are no intervening steps that are necessary. You maybe have not fully fulfilled your journey, but you're not separated now by some long distance between where you started and where you're going. It's used, by the way, in Mark 11.1 when Jesus had made a long journey down from Galilee to Jerusalem and we're told that He was drawing near, or literally you could say Jerusalem was at hand. He was drawing near to Jerusalem or Jerusalem was at hand. He had made all of those steps and all of those miles and all of those Um, diversions and all the teaching and all the stuff along the way. Many, many things had happened, but now after everything had happened, he was right there. And someone has described this phrase like a, like a, a holding pattern with an, with an airline. When it travels across the Atlantic or whatever, and it's, it's, it arrives at the airport, but it's not given the final clearance to touch down, and the, and the tower gives it the command to go into a holding pattern. And so, in a sense, it has arrived, but it just hasn't necessarily been manifest yet. This is what James wants you to realize about the day of the Lord. It's, it's here. It's upon us. It is, it is right there in a sort of a holding pattern and it could break out even now into our existence. It could happen. It's not like a whole lot of things need to take place. The whole process could begin to unfold. And everything that you are so worried about can be made right in a moment. And so this is what he wants us to realize. He wants us to realize that he's close. There's a real proximity to his coming. And you need to keep that in mind. In fact, James says you need to establish your hearts in this. And it ought to lead you to patience. It ought to lead you to patience. You notice even there in verse 7, he uses the word therefore. Therefore, because he's directly talking to these people who are suffering under the greed of these wealthy, privileged people, those who are being, those who are being denied payment and denied resources and those who are having to go home every night and tell their family and tell their kids, we, I didn't get paid today, I, I don't have the funds, we can't buy that thing, I can't get you those clothes, we may not have the food. Those are the people that he's talking to. Therefore, 
Be patient. In the face of all those kinds of injustices, in the face of all of those nights of unanswered prayer, in the face of all of the anguish that it brings into your heart and mind, in the face of all the frustration that you have whenever you face the inequities that are out there and you understand the indulgences of those people who have all those resources and, and could, could just with the, the, the whiff of a little finger could could change your life if they just had any sense of care and concern in their body, but they don't seem to be concerned. They don't seem to care about your suffering. And you go home and you cry out. And his answer to you is eschatological. Be patient. Be patient. I know that's not the word of counsel that people want to hear. I know it's difficult to give that kind of counsel to people who are facing injustice. I know it seems unsympathetic. Urging someone to be patient, it can certainly come across as a convenient way of you just dismissing their problems because it is an inconvenience to you. But you cannot really give someone biblical counsel if you don't build it on a view of the second coming of Christ. You cannot give someone Christian counsel on suffering if it isn't focused on the ultimate return of Messiah. So James' essential counsel to these workers who are being mistreated, who are not being paid, who are struggling with all of these things who are having to face the indulgent, luxurious lifestyles of those who are denying them justice. His essential counsel is be patient and wait until the coming of the Lord. And then he illustrates it. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. So he compares it to something they would probably be familiar with, which is the situation of these farmers. The farmer has to have patience. He has to. He may wish he had the power to change things, but he doesn't. He might be down to his last barrel of wheat, and he may wish that he could speed up the process, but he can't. In order to get the yield from the the crops that he wants, he toils, he tills the ground, he plants, he pulls the weeds, he mends the fences, he does whatever he has to do, and then he has nothing left to do but to wait. It's not an overnight process. James says he's patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. There are, in other words, just meteorological realities that you cannot change. Rain comes, at least in the land of Israel, generally twice a year. The early rain came during the the planting season, which would have been November, late October, November, as they would put their seed into the ground after they've tilled it all up. They would have sporadic rains throughout the winter months. And then as the crops began to bud and the fruit began to blossom, they would receive the late rains. Those rains which came in late March or in April until they could finally harvest their crops in May. And it had to be a long time. These rains, by the way, were promised by God in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 11.4, I'll give you the rain 
of your land in due season, the first rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. So the farmer understood this. He understood that he had to wait. He understood he had to trust God to send these rains. The farmers generally didn't have the means to store up years and years of grain or years and years of oil. They generally were running low on their rations. They were having to cut back as they went into the harvesting months as the crops began to ripen. And so they had to be patient. While all the various seasons passed, patient. While the Lord sent in His own timing whatever He sent. You had to trust that the Lord knew your situation. You had to trust that the Lord was capable of meeting your needs. You had to trust that the Lord was at hand. This is what Scripture tells you to do if you're suffering. Romans 8 talks about suffering. It talks about us being in the midst of a society and a world which is, which is groaning under the weight of sin. And Paul says in that, in that chapter, Romans 8, 24, he says, In this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Paul says you were saved into this. This is the way you, your whole salvation works. You look to the future, an unfinished future, a future you can't fully see, but you fix your hope on it. And that hope begins to define your salvation. So James says here, you, verse 8, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded and set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This, this is what we do. We have to establish our minds there. Or to say it another way, you need to preoccupy yourself, not with the current situation that you're in, not with all of the inequities that you're in. You need to preoccupy yourself with the Lord's return. It cannot be an afterthought. It is a battle that you must establish the supremacy of the idea of the Lord's return as you face these various situations of injustice. You have to establish the supremacy of the Lord's return. You cannot then, you cannot think about or discuss the issue of suffering in society as a Christian without focusing first and foremost on the justice that will be brought to you at the return of Christ. He'll make all things right. Secondly, James wants us to remember another factor that, that ought to formulate the way we respond to sufferings, and that is the potential for lost rewards the potential for lost rewards. He says in verse 9, don't grumble. Don't grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So James understands that this is tough, and he understands it's going to be a temptation for them to grow impatient, and he understands it's going to be 
a potential cause for them to grumble and complain and protest. The frustration might boil over so that they actually begin to criticize one another. And we don't know if this is just general criticism or we don't know if it's criticism even towards those who are causing the injustice. We just know that James gives this general warning against grumbling toward brothers. He's clearly talking about Christians here. He calls them, he warns them about grumbling against other Christians in the midst of their suffering. Don't let your disappointment, don't let your frustration boil over into friction with other genuine brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't let your frustration leave you into such a place of self-pity where you are going around and demanding some level of sympathy from brothers and sisters, and if they don't give it to you, you grow bitter and grumble against them. Don't let your frustration with suffering and injustice lead you to that kind of bitterness. Don't let your frustration lead you to a place of envy where you're now looking at other Christians who don't have it as badly as you have it and you grumble against them. Don't let your suffering cause you to lash out against these other brothers and sisters in Christ. Why? Well, James says, don't do it so that you won't be judged. Because behold, the judge is standing at the door. Again, it's imminent. His return is right here. He is saying that, this, that there's going to be a judgment. The judge is standing and, and this judge is coming to render judgment not only against those who are oppressing, but also you who are oppressed. Even for you who are Christians, as much as we hope for the Lord's return to bring about righteousness and fairness and equity, we also need to be aware that we'll have to give an account and we might actually suffer more loss by the way that we respond. That would be tragic. It would be so tragic to have to go through this life and have suffered so much loss and so much Uh, inequity and so much robbery or whatever it might be. It'd be so tragic to go through and suffer so much loss in this life. And then because you responded to that situation in the wrong way to suffer more loss when the Lord comes. But this is what James is talking about. When you, who profess to be a Christian, find yourself in a place of suffering And rather than responding to it the way God would have you respond to it, you respond to it with criticism and grumbling and complaining against other Christians, particularly. You're going to face judgment. Now, this judgment obviously is different than the judgment that an unbeliever will face. We understand that the Scripture says there's now no more condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. We no longer stand under the threat of eternal condemnation because we are in Christ. All of God's eternal wrath against our sins has been directed at Christ on the cross. And so in that sense, all of God's anger is completely satisfied. There is no more cause of fear for eternity. And so we will be received into God's kingdom and our eternal, our, our eternal peace with God is secure. 
But at the same time, the scripture is very clear that we, while we are eternally secure, we still face a time of accounting, a time of evaluation. There's an evaluation that will be, uh, have a direct impact on the rewards that are entrusted to us in the kingdom to come. 1 Corinthians 3 speaks about this. You may remember 1 Corinthians, Paul's writing to a group of people who were themselves wrangling in jealousy and envy and strife. He talks about it at the beginning of chapter 3, how they were filled with carnality or fleshliness and worldliness. And Paul speaks to them about how they need to lay all this stuff aside and reminds them that God has entrusted different situations to different people. He's entrusted even different ministries to each of us. And he compares himself to to Apollos and he says, look, some people plant and some people water, but God gives the increase. That God, in other words, God entrusts different task and different fields and different work and different responsibilities to each of us. And so we don't judge our lives and we don't even judge the quality of our work based on the outward manifestation because we might have been the person just putting the seeds in the ground. We might be the person seeing the harvest. It doesn't matter. The key is to realize that God has entrusted something, some field, some station, and that you need to work it the way God intends you to work it, and that He's going to evaluate you simply on that, not on what you may think. He's going to evaluate you based on your faithfulness with what He has appointed for you to do. And then Paul tells them, look, we have had a foundation that's been laid for us already in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 3.12, now if anyone builds on that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one of us has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss, though himself will be saved, but only through fire. So you'll be saved, but there's going to be a judgment. You'll be saved, but there's going to be an evaluation. And you could very well suffer loss of rewards. You could suffer loss of rewards. Now James wants you to to understand that. He takes that concept and he applies it to the issue of suffering and injustice. And what, he, what he's saying is that you need to respond to the various situations that you find yourself in, the suffering that you find yourself in. You need to respond with the reality that God's going to evaluate you based on how you grapple with the situation he's placed you in. God cares deeply not only about the fact that you suffer, but God cares deeply with the way you suffer, the way you respond to suffering. If you respond to your suffering with humble trust, glorifying Him, the sweetness of spirit and sanctification that comes along with it, 
there's reward. But if you respond to your suffering by taking aim at other Christians or accusing other Christians, it doesn't please God, it doesn't glorify God, it doesn't sow the seeds that God wants you to sow, it doesn't see the fruit that God wants you to have, it doesn't take advantage of the way God wants you to take advantage of the situation. And so God has placed you where he's placed you, and you ought to magnify him. We read from Peter earlier, but we could study that whole book. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, as it comes to situations like this, he says, it's a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if you sin and you're beaten for it and then you endure, but if when you do good and suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his footsteps. So this is something you were called to. This is something God's appointed for you. And you're so focused on what you think are those external factors and those external people and those, those folks who are treating you unjust or whatever it might be. You haven't stopped to consider God might have, might have actually appointed this for you. And yet you take time out of your own self-pity and your own frustration to lash out, not just at those who might be oppressing you, even criticizing brothers and sisters. Which, by the way, these are God's children. These are God's children who He gave His Son to die on the cross for. He doesn't take it lightly when you're criticizing them and lashing out at them. So, respond to suffering not with that kind of grumbling Missing the opportunities that God's provided for you to grow in humility and faith and glory and godliness. Missing opportunities to build up rewards. Missing opportunities that He's provided for your own conformity to Christ. For your own opportunities to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. Don't miss all of that just in order to grumble against other people. Thirdly, the New Testament view of suffering is the Old Testament view of suffering. James would point you also to consider the pattern of the prophets. He would consider the pattern of the prophets. We read about taking the example of the Lord, but James says here in verse 15, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of of the Lord. And this is so clear and so simple. You need to understand God's will in your suffering. And in order to do that, just spend a little time reading the Scripture. Just read the Old Testament. Read about the prophets, these heroes of the faith, these, as James says here, the ones who spoke in the name of the Lord. There's no question that God used these men. There's no question that God was with these men. There's no question they were filled with the Spirit. There's no question that they're held up to us as examples. And yet, what do their lives look like? What does Jeremiah's life look like? What does Isaiah's life look like? What does Elijah's life look like? 
What kind of example do we get when looking at them? Is it a life of ease? Is it a life of comfort? Is it a life free of animosity? Is it free of injustice? Well, the obvious answer is no. You'd be hard-pressed to find an example, I think, of a prophet that didn't suffer. And so the question is, how did they respond? How did they respond? James says they were examples of suffering and patience. They exemplified patience. They exemplified what it is to cry out to the Lord and not receive immediate resolution and to have to wait. In fact, Hebrews tells us that these men were examples of faith because many of them went to their grave. And yet they, according to Hebrews 11, had assurance of things hoped for and confidence in things that their eyes never saw. They were focused on the return of Christ. They were focused on how God resolves everything in the end. You remember that chapter rehearses a whole list of heroes, many of them prophets, but they suffered tremendously. And the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 11 that they saw all set an example demonstrating that without faith it's impossible to please God for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. You've got to, if you want to please God, you cannot just go and say, well, God exists. You also have to have the companion message that He rewards those who seek Him, that there is something out there. And then He goes on and He gives this whole litany of of, of examples of patriarchs and Moses. And then he says in Hebrews eleven thirty five, speaking of Samuel and the prophets, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in the skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. They lived in holes in the ground. And the point is that these men are the classic examples of God's choice servants, suffering affliction and even when they suffered affliction, just setting their eyes on Christ. And you don't judge them according to their outward poverty, their outward prosperity. You don't judge them based on the material success or failure. It is their character that shines out of their life. And that is why the writer says the world wasn't worthy of those kinds of people. The world isn't worthy of and the reason we say that about them isn't, doesn't have anything to do with their external life. It has everything to do with what was put on display through their suffering. And so James says, follow their example. Take their model. Let that be the pattern. 
If you want to have a New Testament view of this issue of suffering, very quickly, to build a Christian view of suffering then, you begin with eschatology. You remember the proximity of the Lord, the potential lost rewards, the pattern of the prophets. And then fourthly, James says, the purpose of God's mercy. Verse 11, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So he moves past the prophets to the quintessential example of suffering in Job. And he points to Job's primary quality, which is steadfastness. You've heard of his steadfastness. Not only that, but you've seen the purpose of the Lord in his life. This is the thing about Job's story. We have the advantage of seeing it in the whole. We, 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 we know the end of the story. We even get the backstage view. We get to be taken into the throne room of heaven. And so we understand from the very beginning that there are things going on through his suffering that are far beyond what Job could have ever understood in the midst of it. Job didn't get any of that while he was going through his suffering. All he had was questions. All he had was seeming darkness. All he had was, was the pain And the loneliness. He was the most faithful guy on the face of the earth in his day. The most faithful guy on the face of the earth. And yet he still suffered loss of possessions and children and even his own health. And he sat quietly in the dust and ashes scraping his sores with broken pottery while his friends sat back and did nothing but make accusations against him. All the while, though, God was at work and he didn't know it. God was doing something and he wasn't thinking about, or he wasn't aware, at least, of that. His wife was complaining. His friends were accusing And yet, how did he respond? Job 2.10. He said to his wife, Shall we receive good from the Lord? And shall we not receive evil? And in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. He had questions, but he never accused God. He didn't lash out at others. He didn't become bitter against others. He responded to the accusations of his friends, but only to point them back to God. And he says in Job 19, I know that my Redeemer lives and that at the last He will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I'll see God. Where did Job put his hope? It was eschatology. It was the end. Unwavering hope unwavering faith, steadfastness. Job says, though he slays me, I'll still hope in him. I'll lift out my heart. I'll pour out my cries. And even when God is sending evil, I will continue to serve him, not sinning with my lips. And what does, Job, what does James say here in James chapter 5? We behold and consider those blessed. From our vantage point, we're looking at those kinds of people and we're celebrating them. 
We might look around at us and we might read the newspaper or look at the, uh, you know, the, 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 the blogs or we might watch a, some, some video or whatever it might be and we might see the celebration around those who are glorious in their luxuries today. But when we think about history, what do we celebrate? We celebrate those people who are remaining steadfast through their sufferings. They have something that's so, so far beyond this external way in which we judge one another when we don't have to think about it in the sense of the emotion of going through it personally we evaluate those people and we call them blessed because their life demonstrated something the way they suffered demonstrated something it demonstrated listen to this it demonstrated something that could not be demonstrated through earthly comforts. Their life and their suffering demonstrated something that could not be demonstrated through comforts. And James says, we call them blessed. We, we exalt them. We rightly celebrate what God did in them. And in the end, James says, God demonstrated still that he was compassionate and merciful. With Job's life, God not only restored to him on this earth possessions and wealth and children and happiness, but God set him up as a model for so many people. For others, they died in faith and their impact, they may have felt like in their lifetime would die with them, but their impact goes so far beyond their own lifetime. And now we we, we evaluate them from the vantage point of history and we consider them blessed. They're blessed because of the way they suffered. So before you grow impatient, before you grow frustrated, and before you grumble, Realize that God has put so many of his greatest servants through similar circumstances and he did it with a purpose. He did it with a purpose that is similar to the purpose he has for your suffering. And it's grounded in his compassion and mercy. Well, fifthly and quickly, James also mentions one final eschatological element here. In verse 12, the penalty for broken promises. The penalty for broken promises. Now this verse puzzles a lot of commentators because it appears as if it is somewhat wedged in here. In the midst of a conversation about people struggling because he talks in verses 1 through 6 about the rich but then he launches into this conversation of patience with the suffering. And then immediately in verse 13, he even picks it up again and he starts talking about people who are suffering and how you respond to people who are suffering. And so surrounded, if you will, by this flow of thought about suffering people, James inserts this. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So, so what's clear is that he's talking to brothers. He, he calls them brothers. They're Christians. 
And what's also clear is he's also focused on eschatology. He warns them about condemnation, about, we might say, losing their rewards when God comes to evaluate their life. But he seems to have turned his focus away from those who are suffering and back to those who are causing the suffering, just like he did in verses 1 through 6. And I think one of the keys here is to recognize that all of this, verses 7 through 11 and even verse 12, all of this is part of this larger discussion going all the way back to chapter 4, verse 1, where he started to talk about quarrels and fights among brothers. And quarrels and fights among you. And he's talking about how your desire and your hearts and what's rooted there cause you to break out in conflict with other Christians. And out of that conversation, he gives all these exhortations regarding our speech. Verse chapter 4, verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Or verse 13. Don't arrogantly boast about tomorrow and what you'll do in verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we'll do this or we'll do that. So this is all about the way you speak. Verse 9, don't grumble against one another. Now here in verse 12, but above all, or we might say last but not least, kind of the fourth, if you will, the fourth admonition in his exhortations about how you use your tongue in the midst of all this, dealing with the issue of how we speak to one another, in the midst of all this conflict and these inequities even within life, whether you are the one deprived and grumbling against someone or whether you are the prosperous boasting about what you'll accomplish here or there or here making vain promises, vain oaths. James says you need to take into consideration the condemnation that you could come under. In this case, people who flippantly use their words, and we don't have time to develop all this, we'll hopefully have a a chance to come back to this maybe in a couple months when we look more deeply at the Gospel of Matthew. Because James, excuse me, Matthew talks about this a number of times in his own book. But here James is just picking up, no doubt, on the teaching of the Lord and reminding probably these affluent Christians who had bought into what was at this time an elaborate system of taking oaths that had developed. It kind of came out of Jewish reticence and hesitance to use the name of the Lord. They didn't want to take the name of the Lord. They didn't want to violate the, the um, what is that, the, the third commandment, I think it is, second commandment. They didn't want to take the Lord's name in vain. They thought of God's name as holy. And the last thing they wanted to do is to use His name in an oath that they couldn't fulfill And so they developed this elaborate scheme of replacing God's name with other things. They replaced God's name with things like Jerusalem or the holy city or the temple or the gold of the temple. And and uh, Jesus talks about this in the Gospel of Matthew. And because they replaced the name of God, somehow they convinced themselves that because they didn't use God's holy name that now somehow the oath that they took was not holy in the same way. And therefore, to break their word wasn't as bad. And so they had, if you will, these sort of second-tier oaths, elaborate schemes where they could carefully 
carefully craft their words, giving the appearance of earnestness when in fact they weren't earnest. They weren't committed to what they promised. And this probably had become an issue among the believers. Perhaps some of the wealthy believers had promised certain things. Maybe they promised wages or maybe they promised assistance to fellow believers in need. And when they made those promises and they gave an oath, now they weren't willing to follow through on what they promised. So James is reminding them, it doesn't matter whether you swear by heaven or earth or Jerusalem or the temple or whatever. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. To do that, he says, is to invite condemnation. It's to lose rewards. In other words, it's much worse to promise or to even say, you will do something and not to do it than to never promise at all. Well, much, much more could be said certainly about the issue of oaths and as I said, hopefully we'll have opportunity in the days to come. The point for us this morning is how do you respond to suffering? How do you respond to injustice? Is it Christian? the way you respond? Or is it worldly? There are lots of theories, social theories, justice theories, plenty of theories of fairness and equity and balance. But to be a Christian theory, it has to be centered on the return of Christ. It has to be focused on the just one. It has to focus on the glory that will be His when He comes and sets all things right. James says this, establish your heart there. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Lord, this is such a clear truth. You have not left us in the dark as it relates to this issue and yet, It grieves us to hear so few people representing this clear message of Christ. Let our hearts be established on Him. Let our glory be in Him. Let our hope be in Him. For it's not to us, O Lord, not to us that glory belongs. It belongs to Him. And we will not set our hope in this world or the systems of this world we'll continue to set our hope on Him. What a glorious, glorious day it will be when He appears. Nothing, nothing will compare to it. And Lord, we will revel in it even now, setting our mind, fixing our hope, girding our minds for action on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.